Gateway, happy Sunday. So glad to be here with you. If you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter 11. We will conclude chapter 11 and even sneak on into chapter 12. Mark 11, 27 to 12, 12 is where we'll be. And so if you can, wherever you are, perhaps you're at your kitchen table or you're uh, still in bed, praise be to God for the pandemic for that reason. Uh, Wherever you are, out of reverence for God, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Mark eleven twenty seven, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, Well, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? Mark kind of whispers to us here. They were afraid of the people, for they all held John, that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he, the owner, sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him. They killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Still speaking to the leaders here, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord, and you can have a seat. See, passages like our teaching texts are unique. They are both straightforward and crooked. They're clear and opaque at the same time. Passages like this, they force us to listen, to really strain our ears. They force us to consider a fresh perspective and to really feel what's going on through Jesus. Not just understand what went on, but to feel what's going on. 
kind of the mood, the tone, the vibe, if you will. But these passages, passages that force us to to listen and consider and feel what's going on, these passages also frustrate us because they make us work for it. I think the poet Billy Collins captures this well when he says, I ask them to make a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel for the walls, feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they do is tie the poem to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. See, we do this. We do this in the privacy of our hearts, and we do it in sermons like this one. We ask, what does it really mean for Jesus to have the authority to flip tables over in the temple? Not only that, we ask, what does it really mean that Jesus thinks the temple is his father's house? What does it really mean that the tenants turned terrorists will be destroyed? What does the rejected cornerstone mean? We ask and we ask and we ask again until we've stripped Jesus of any ambiguity. Our discomfort may be eased in this process of asking and asking and asking, but the confrontation of this passage remains untouched. And it's this the bold-faced human desire to be our own authority. We desire to be the authors of our own stories, to be our own authority. Jesus confronts that here today. We actually see this impulse in the religious leaders. And just consider this question that they asked Jesus back in verse 28. Go there with me. They ask, by what authority are you doing these things? Or, who gave you this authority to do them? If we were to re-envision this question in the language of today, they'd be asking, who do you think you are, Jesus? Suffice it to say, that tone, I believe, is appropriate. This was not a polite taking Jesus aside to gain a hearing with him, perhaps garner some understanding, you know, in the spirit of reciprocity. This is not the tone. This is an attack. This is a confrontation. And I can't remember the last time that I asked that question aloud, but I have surely felt that question recently. It comes for me, and I'm not trying to project my feelings onto you, but if you relate, that works well. Uh, When I feel threatened, and not physically threatened, but when my ego feels threatened, when how I've crafted myself to be viewed in the world, when that feels threatened, all of a sudden this thing in my flesh rises up and it comes out in a question like, who do you think you are? Insert the blank. It it comes out even further when then somebody, uh, (laughs) when they ask you, or rather when they say you have to do this thing. See, and in a moment, a desire to be my own authority rises up, and I imagine you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
See, if you can relate to that like I can, then, then we can both relate to the religious leaders. And maybe that's not the person you want to relate to in the story. I certainly don't, but it's telling that we do. The irony of this discomfort is, is that it's nothing new. It's littered throughout the gospel according to Mark. And Jesus' first public display of God's power working through him, the crowds see him. He casts out a demon. The crowds see it, and they go, what is this? What is this? A, a new teaching with authority? So they recognize in Jesus that there's something distinct about him, something whereby he can bring about obedience. He has authority. He, he not only has authority, but, but Jesus' authority, it's meant, it's designed to release us into God's loving care. But, but at that same moment, our desire to be the author of our own story confronts Jesus's authority and pushes back. So it's interesting that when Jesus is pushed, specifically by the religious leaders here, when Jesus is pushed, he doesn't push back in kind. No, he allows the momentum of that push to come in and then he pulls. Because Jesus is trying to invite us in. Did you know that? That right now, wherever you are, Jesus is inviting you in. And you may have been pushing back for this whole pandemic from before this. And there's a new inciting incident that you are pushing back even harder with. Jesus, Jesus is pulling you in. So as you push, just know Jesus is, he's receiving it because he wants you close. He wants an opportunity to reframe how you think about him. We actually see this with the, the leaders here in this verbal sparring match. See, the push comes by what authority do you do this, Jesus? In other words, who do you think you are to invade this space, our space, the temple? Who, who do you think you are to flip tables over in our house? They've forgotten that it's really God's domain, his space, but they're acting like it's theirs. So they ask this question and in total Jesus fashion, he, he puts forward another question. This is a, like a typical rabbinic debate. One question with another. I won't yield to your question. Here's mine. So that's what's going on. So he puts forward this, this question. He's not, notice this, Jesus isn't unwilling to answer their question. He just submits that they need to answer his question. And so they need to make clear where they stand with John the baptizer. This is beautiful. Is, is he from heaven or is he not? Is he from God's space or is he from man? If they stand with John, who is a prophet, recognized by the people as one sent by God to prepare the way for one greater than him, if they stand with John, they implicitly recognize that Jesus is the greater one. Beautiful tact. Like, this is so clever. <laughs> Jesus is an excellent tactician. Maybe we don't get into verbal sparring matches with Jesus. Just a, a word of pastoral advice there. Uh, see, if they, if they affirm and that they stand with John, then they affirm Jesus. And if they don't, well, then the crowds, they would turn against them. So when Jesus is asked, who do you think you are? He, he pulls, he pulls, he's he pushed and he pulls. And when he pulls, he actually pulls us into that question ourselves. Not only who do we think we are, but who do we think he is? And in that moment, we're confronted with our desires to be the author of our own stories. We're confronted with the desire to be our own authorities. 
And even as the temple leaders try to tie Jesus down, to, to strip him of any ambiguity, he then sets a story alongside the moment to show where our unchecked desire for authority leads. And riffing on the prophet Isaiah, which Jesus is fond of doing, Jesus actually sees himself as one like Isaiah, but not just a parrot. See, Jesus riffs on Isaiah, and he just about quotes him directly by pulling on this famous love poem that Isaiah writes. Actually, I would just love for us to hear this. This is Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. This is the source of Jesus's riff. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. Sound familiar already? He dug it up, cleared it of stones, planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Eerily similar, Jesus. Then he looked for a crop because that's what you would do in a vineyard. He looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit literally stinky fruit. Verse three, now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it only yield bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, it will be destroyed. I will, I will break down its walls, it will be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And then check this out. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And get this. This is where it's all heading. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. See, Isaiah the prophet believed and was in this moment accusing the people of Israel of their utter squandering of an opportunity given them by God. An opportunity to be God's healing presence in a hurting world. Really the opportunity to live out God's justice in all of humanity. And if you can believe it, the people didn't like Isaiah's words to them, can't understand why you wouldn't necessarily want to hear that. That's a joke. Uh, when Isaiah then moves on and he wants to cash out this metaphor, just let me, let me show you this again. This is so beautiful. When he wants to cash out the metaphor of Israel as stinky grapes, this is the thing that stinks. He says he looked for justice. The, the Hebrew word for justice is mishpat, but he saw only bloodshed, mispach. He looked for righteousness, which the Hebrew word for that is tzedakah, but heard cries of distress, tzedakah. See, righteousness is all about equitable relationships, irrespective of, of class or status or gender. And if these right relationships stand, then integrity stands. But if these right relationships are compromised, then justice, legal action, must come in to redeem righteousness. God shows up looking 
for righteousness, and in the place where righteousness has been compromised, the redemption of that righteousness. He looks for mishpat and tzedakah. That's what he wants to find. That is the fruit that he wants to yield from his vineyard. So that's what he comes. And instead, he finds, instead of mishpat, mispach, he looks for tzedakah and instead finds tzedakah. So the wordplay itself is beautiful. Does it, the English does not quite capture what's going on there. And I don't know, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the language of mixtapes. I'm, I'm like just, I like I hardly, I hardly do. I, don't, I never made a mixtape, but I have received mixtapes. Uh, see, I recently watched a movie and a main theme of it was the making of mixtapes. Apparently you sit and listen to the radio for long periods of time, listening for a song, a song that captures your heart posture toward a person or persons. And then when that song comes over the radio, you have your recording device and you hit record and you get it. And sometimes you miss the first few seconds and then sometimes it goes back over, but that's, you compile this mixtape to say something bigger and more beautiful than what words alone could do. You do this as a way to allow that person to remember you constantly. So whenever that song came across the radio, whenever they heard it in the distance, they would remember you. See, when Jesus riffs on Isaiah, this is what he's doing. 700 years later, Jesus comes on the scene after Isaiah with a prophetic mixtape to call Israel's leaders back to account for their mismanagement of God's vineyard. To remind the people that the line between justice and righteousness is as fine as a single letter between tzedakah and tzedakah, between mishpat and mispach. See, but that's not all. Listen again to Jesus's highlight track back in Mark chapter 12, verse 1. This is the parable. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a pit with for the wine press, built a tower, leased it to tenants, and went into another country. At this point, it's he's all but quoting it. And then a shift. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit, and they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. As you read on, they, they have increasingly hostile responses to the owner's servants. It comes to the point where uh, they kill, shame, beat, and then the owner says he'll send his son. Surely they'll respect the son. They say to themselves, these tenants of the vineyard, we kill the son, we get the land. We get his inheritance. In no framework does that math work out. But nevertheless, they've deceived themselves. They think that if they kill the son, then it will finally be theirs. And so they do. They seize him, they kill him, and they throw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come destroy the tenants, and then give the vineyard to others. So when we hear this, it's so clear that Jesus is riffing on Isaiah's love poem, but it's also clear that Jesus, like mid-recording, <laughs> shifts the poem and then adds his own stanzas. 
See, see, now it's not the vineyard that's the problem, the vineyard that's producing the rot. No, no, the rot rests in the tenants to whom the vineyard is leased. Remember, Jesus is telling this parable to the religious leaders. So the temptation for you and me might be to start reading ourselves into this, which um, see ourselves into the scriptures. Yes, a beautiful practice, but let's not forget the context with which we're in. Jesus is telling this to religious leaders. They've just pushed against Jesus asking who he thinks he is and by what authority he's turned over the tables and the temple. And when pushed, remember, Jesus pulls. And when Jesus pulls, he's pulling the leaders into their own question about his authority and more about his identity. Because just then when Jesus pulls, he sets this story. He sets this story about the tenants turned terrorist alongside a story that leads ultimately to tenants beating and killing the owner's servants, a story that leads to the owner's son, the one who embodies the full authority of the estate and embodies the presence of the owner himself. That son is seized, killed, and thrown out like garbage. Once again, where's the justice? Where is the righteousness? And we don't know, Mark doesn't tell us, but it's likely that the tenants for some felt like heroes. And you might be saying, well, really, Kyle? They seem pretty horrific. Well, go here with me. See, uh, what about this? Just think, think about this. They would be asking where the justice is for them. See, at this point in Israel's history, they're captives in their own land. They've been under military oppression time and time again, and many people are now tenant farmers on their ancestral homeland, the land that they used to have as a possession from God. They are working as tenant farmers for some foreign landowner. Only then at the, at the end of all of their labor, not to share in it, but to give it away to somebody who has no presence in the land. That feels like injustice, right? And at some level, it certainly is. And I, I imagine, like, sanctified imagination and all, like, that this story, like, people are listening because it resonates at a guttural level. And we don't know because Mark doesn't tell us again. We don't know how this impacted the crowds. But what we do know is how the parable settled into the hearts of the religious leaders. So we read that they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but something stood in the way they feared the people. Just note this, um, their fear is not of God, their fear is of the people. There's something to be said about this in the scriptures that when we think about how we fear God, this is such a hang up for us modern folk of like, well, am I supposed to have fear? Is it reverence? Is it awe? What do I do? Part of it is a legitimate fear. I mean, he's the creator of the cosmos. He breathes on this like chaotic sea, dry land appears in all of creation. That's pretty epic. I mean, thunder strikes and I shake. I like startle. Um, he's the God of thunder. So <laughs> like, there's that going on. Uh, but notice that, that their fear is not of God, of, of, of what their, their right relationship is with him. Theirs is more of, of the people. So they 
They fear the people. And in response to that, they go away from Jesus. And so if the leaders of the temple, the ones who are pushing against Jesus, if they conclude in their mind after hearing this parable that they are the tenants, who's Jesus? Jesus is the son. See, the Hebrew word, this is fascinating. The Hebrew word for son, you know it. It's actually a name. <laughs> it's Ben. The Hebrew word for son is Ben. So we could read the story this way. The father sends his Ben, but the tenants, the farmers, seize, kill, and throw Ben out. So what's happening here? Like, how on earth does this whole workforce, the tenant workforce, shift from being an illegal contract with the owner of the land to doing violence to his servants and his son to the point of death? I think this is a telling story, a, a moment of reflection about what happens when we give ourselves over to our basest desires. I fear and I want. See, when, when we desire to be the authors of our own story, to, to be our own authority, and we taste it, it, it turns us inward on ourselves to where we think and we are deceived that we have to defend what is ours. And we forget that everything is a gift that has come down from the Father. So, so if that's it, though, if you, if you really do believe that what you have is yours, what are you going to do to defend it? And then let's take that one step further. What if you really believe that what you have is yours and you have the authority over it? What extent will you go to hold on to that authority, to possess that thing? Well, the parable invites us to wonder that very question. It invites our imaginations to participate in the story that somehow, we don't know when, but somehow maybe it's over the course of harvests like, or maybe it's one really plentiful harvest, the tenants get into their collective conscience. Remember, they all said, this is the son, let us kill him, we'll kill him, and then we'll get his inheritance. Somehow they get it into their collective conscience that they are due the land upon which they labor. As the owner sins to collect some of the fruit, they reject. They beat, they shame, they murder to protect what's not even theirs. It's interesting, I have a toddler, and so I get to see this play out in seed form. It's, it's, a, it's a good developmental thing I read and hear for a child to express their autonomy, uh, for them to say, mine. It's annoying, for sure. But nevertheless, this is in seed form. Mine. This is mine. No, daddy. This is mine. And I sit, or I stand, or I, wherever I'm at, I'm like, <laughs> and I reel at times. And my son has no idea where those things come from. He has no idea that all the stuff that he has has been either a gift that we have received or a gift that we have given him. But he says, no, daddy, mine. And recently he's begun to say, move back. <laughs> and it's cute. But in his little mind, in his little heart, that is his and he will defend it. See, the tenants are like toddlers and thinking that what is not even theirs they need to defend. And what I love is how Jesus confronts 
these tenants who are acting like toddlers. And stay with me here because the, the profit is, the payoff is so glorious. See, first, Jesus asks the Bible scholars at the end of the parable, have you ever read your Bible? By the way, that's funny. And then he proceeds to quote from the Bible, specifically Psalm 118. Now, Psalms uh, 113 to 118 are a part of the great Hallel songs. They would be sung in the temple liturgy during the week of Passover. So they would come to the temple. This would be the resonant chord, the, the resonant song in the temple itself. And surely they had re- they'd heard it while they've been there, and Jesus quotes from it. And, and this then becomes a moment where Jesus takes all of the circumstances and allows the poignancy of the circumstances to carry the weight of his statement. See, Psalm 118 is this beautiful psalm about a servant. We don't know who, it just is I. Uh, This poet has gone through suffering, suffering at the hands of the poet's enemies, great suffering. And in the midst of that, the, the, the poet calls out to God and God delivers the poet. God delivers the poet and exalts the poet up over their enemies. Then from the secure place of God's salvation, the poet reflects back on God's vindication from their suffering and reflects back with these words, Jesus' words at the end of the parable. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. See, cornerstones, as you'll see in this picture, this is at the base of the Temple Mount, cornerstones are known as the best stones. Not only are they the most beautiful, but they're also chosen for their lack, or excuse me, chosen for their their strength. These Herodian stones that you see in the picture at the base of the Temple Mount, I mean, they're still standing some 2,000 years later. And in the process, no doubt, in the process of choosing these stones, uh, before they're placed, they would go, the builders would examine the stones. And, and the ones that did not pass inspection would be rejected. But according to the poet of Psalm 118, in God's eyes, the stone that is rejected by the builders, the ones who are constructing the, edip- the, the place where God would be worshipped, the one that is rejected is the stone that God will make his showcase. That will be the showpiece. This is the payoff. Do you have any guess what the Hebrew word for stone is? It's eben. It's eben. See, side by side, these stories worked on the religious leaders to the point that they concluded the parable was about them. And they were right. They will be the ones who in short order seize, kill, and then cast the sun aside. In other words, they're the ones who reject the sun. They reject the ben. And God's marvelous work takes what was rejected and makes it his showcase. God takes the rejected eben and displays his glory through it. See, the story of the sun is not over. His authority stands. Who do you think you are, Jesus? I'm the one who was rejected. I'm the one who was seized, killed, and cast out, but God has done a marvelous work. See, even when Jesus is nailed to the cross, mocked, shamed, rejected, and seemingly stripped of all of his power, listen to Jesus. This comes from John chapter 10. He says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus declares these words, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. When we stand as our own authority, when we declare ourselves to be right before God and our neighbor, when we exalt ourselves, even in the smallest of things, at the expense of others, in all this and more, we stand against the authority of Jesus, but it's all his. And this is the beauty. He doesn't lord it over us. Jesus actually wants to give his authority away to those who give their trust to him. In John 1, we, we hear this amazing truth. He, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. That's the whole story that we've just read. Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God is still looking for fruit. He is still looking for justice and righteousness. He still wants the yield from his vineyard. That's why he's given it over to others. But not as tenants, but as daughters and sons. Standing not in their own authority, but standing in the authority of Jesus. So the invitation for us this day in a season that is saying, I have the power, no, I have the power, is to say, Jesus has the power, and I am willing to yield to that. Is to lay down, the invitation for us, Gateway, is to lay down the illusion of control, to detach ourselves from the illusion that we actually hold all things together and attach ourselves securely to God in Christ because that is our secure place on the cornerstone of Jesus. That is the place of our security. Our authority is not, his authority is. That is the invitation of Jesus. You see, we may, more often than we'd care to admit, want to be the authors of our own story. And those are the moments when we get to ask this question, who do we think we are? Who do I think I am? And I don't lord that question over myself, but with the grace with which Jesus moves towards the world, I allow his grace to move towards me. I say, I receive your gentle yoke, Jesus. I receive your authority. I receive the reality that you lay down your life willingly, that you take it up, that God has raised you, vindicated you from the day, and it is a marvelous work. The invitation in us receiving the way of Jesus as daughters and sons is that we get to participate with God in the work of renewal, the work of justice and righteousness. That is who God is calling us to be. May we receive his invitation. Let's pray. God, we come to you as the one who came to us. We come to you no longer as those who say we're striving to get to you, but ones who can say that the striving is over because in Jesus it is finished. So Spirit of the living God, come, bring conviction of sin and righteousness. Help us to have the courage to turn to you, Lord.
to fear you more than we fear man, and in this moment to move towards you as in trust, entrusting ourselves into your care, Father. God, we love you, and where we fail to love you, where we don't even feel it in our hearts, would you stir our affections so that we might say, we are united to God in Christ. Amen. Amen.